Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and today I'm not joined as normal by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. He's not available this week, so as a one-off, I shall be having a different kind of conversation with someone who has vast experience of investment trusts, but in a different capacity. That person is Professor John Kay, the economist and author, who I've been fortunate to know for many years. He has recently retired as a director of Scottish Mortgage, the largest and most successful investment trust in the UK at present. He's been a director there since uh, 2008. He's also director of another investment trust, uh, the Value and Income Trust, and has been in the past directors of other investment trusts as well. He's also a shareholder in both those last two trusts that I mentioned, Scottish Mortgage and Value and Income. Professor Kay has had a distinguished career of his own, as I said, as an academic uh, and as an author. He's been uh, successively director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, a professor at London Business School, the first uh, head of the Said Business School in Oxford, and also author of the Kay report on the UK stock market, in particular the issue of whether or not the market is too short-termist. More recently, he's written, as I said, a number of well-received books on different aspects of economics, business and investing, the most relevant of which, perhaps for our purpose, is a short but uh, very interesting book called The Long and the Short of It, which he describes as a primer on investment for intelligent people who aren't part of the business. And in that, he develops a whole series of interesting arguments about the way that investors should think. I started our conversation by asking Professor Kay to describe his experience as an investment trust director and shareholder. Well, I've been in both roles, actually, since the early 1980s. My first involvement was with what was then Gavette Strategic Investment Trust. But actually, the most interesting part of my experience of investment trusts has been in Scottish Mortgage over the last 10 years. Well, what makes Scottish Mortgage unique and successful is an idiosyncratic fund manager with a very distinctive style and a strong commitment to it. And of course, the result is that it has been, over the last 10 years, the most successful and now is the largest investment trust in the UK. With all that experience behind you, where would you put investment trusts in terms of their role as a potential vehicle for investors? Investment trusts, as many of your listeners will know, have a very long history going back to the late 19th century when they were formed. The first investment trust was actually foreign and colonial and it was formed to enable British savers to invest money abroad under some kind of professional management. Scottish Mortgage was actually set up at the beginning of the 20th century in order to enable people to finance rubber plantations in what is now Malaysia. The demand for finance for rubber plantations in Malaysia turned out, I think, to be quite limited, (laughs) with the result that it quickly diversified into what was then really a rather conventional investment trust with a, a rather dull portfolio of mainstream UK equities. And it wasn't really until 
James Anderson became manager and took the view which I strongly share. Firstly, that investment trust has to be distinguished from its competitors by having rather clear themes and commitments. There are few investment trusts like personal assets, which are designed to be the whole of someone's portfolio. But something like Scottish Mortgage is very definitely not. And it's a diversifier for a mainstream portfolio. And it's focused particularly on themes to do with technology and to do with China. And picking these as major themes has proved to be extremely successful over the last 10 years. The other important aspect of it has been taking stakes in early stage companies after the venture capital stage, but typically before the IPO stage. And my view is that that is a large part of the future of capital markets for growing businesses. In a sense, I think the public equity markets as we've known them was really a creature of the 20th century of large manufacturing corporations, the General Motors, the ICIs and the like, which dominated business in the 20th century. These were businesses that had very large capital requirements. The capital they needed was idiosyncratic. It was, there's not much you can do with an auto plant except make autos in it. Large capital requirements, idiosyncratic plant. And modern, modern business is very different. So one looks at the largest companies in the world today, you're pointing to Amazon and Apple. And if you look at these companies' balance sheets, you discover there's nothing there that um, uh, they don't even own the warehouses and the vans that deliver the Amazon products to your door. The only thing that's there, in fact, in both these companies is cash. So what you need investments for in, the, in these kind of businesses is essentially to cover operating losses in startup businesses. So that's a major source, potentially, of interesting and profitable investment looking forward, I believe. Well, you've covered a lot of ground there, John, and uh, made a lot of interesting points. I'd like to start by picking up on one of them, your discussion of Scottish Mortgage, which, as you say, managed by James Anderson and Tom Slater from Bailey Gifford. How important do you think it's been that Bailey Gifford is an investment partnership where all the managers uh, are shareholders in the business uh, and indeed have to provide the capital for that business? Has that been an important factor in their success? I think that's probably true. It's certainly quite interesting that with the exception, obviously, of BlackRock, the largest and most successful asset managers are not themselves public companies. Uh, they are you know, Fidelity, Capital, etc., businesses like that. That ought to cause one to have some reservations about the applicability of the public company format to these kind of um, individual-led businesses, and even more than Amazon and Apple, which I was talking about a moment ago, um, asset management has nothing in it except the people. And we need to understand so, modern business in terms of capabilities made up of groups of people. That's the nature of modern business generally, which is very different from the kind of 20th century manufacturing companies I was describing a few moments ago. Historically, we've been conditioned to think that unlisted companies or companies that are growing and still need finance are 
inherently riskier than those which are established and have uh, cash generative. What you seem to be saying is that in practice, this isn't necessarily the case. And indeed, looking at some of the the big names that uh, Scottish Mortgage has done so well from, it would be very hard to describe them as being riskier than, say, General Motors or British Airways or established companies of that sort. Uh, Yes, though um, Amazon has got there. I mean, 20 years ago, Amazon clearly was a risky business. But risk, this is something I've written about in Radical Uncertainty, the book Mervyn and I uh, published earlier this year. And there's also some of it in my little book, The Long and Short of It, um, that risk is a property of a portfolio rather than an individual investment. And you can create a quite low risk vehicle from a variety of individually volatile investments. Risk is not the same as volatility. And recognizing that involves quite a fundamental rethinking of the way people approach financial economics and a lot of the advice that's given to people uh, by financial advisors today. That is certainly true. And maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. But just continuing with this this discussion about unlisted securities that uh, Scottish Mortgage has invested in, do you think there's any force in the argument that the way that these companies are perforce valued, in other words, they're not listed, so they're not the valuation is not set by supply and demand in the market for securities, as uh, all listed companies are, but instead are based on valuations determined by to a large extent, the management themselves, does that create a certain conflict of interest? Does it make those uh, values less or more reliable than uh, what you would see in the quoted market? Um, I'm not sure there's a conflict of interest. And actually, it's quite interesting that what a trust like Scottish Mortgage has done with a discount management policy, which is quite active both in share issuance and in share buybacks, So it's significantly different from an open-ended fund in which you can trade every day at a calculated redemption price. Uh, So it allows for a discount of premium to asset values, and it's been at both. But nevertheless, it keeps the value of the shares within quite a narrow range around asset value. You're right, of course, there's more uncertainty about the asset value. Well... Is there really more uncertainty about the asset value if you're talking about a holding in HSBC or BP? Uh, then you can sell most of what any, even the largest fund would hold in these kind of investments. That's something pretty close to the market price. Once you go below, uh, outside the top twenty companies, or certainly beyond the top fifty companies. Uh, the meaning of market price in that sense becomes a lot less clear. Uh, one other issue that uh, you'll hear people say about the strategy of, in, of investing in unlisted companies, as Scottish Mortgage does, is that what's really important is not just recognising a good business when you see one, but actually having the connections to be able to establish a position in those businesses, which are obviously owned by other venture capitalists and so on, or private equity firms, uh, and therefore, you need to have good relationships, do you not, in order to be able to profit from them? I mean, that's a matter of uh, adopting that kind of philosophy 
and then trying to develop close relations with the companies you invest in and essentially building a reputation round about that. So that building a reputation as the kind of investor that companies want, which Scottish Mortgage has done with a group of these companies, is a key to finding the right kind of opportunities. And of course, critical to that is saying, well, right, you're not holding these to be in and out on a short-term basis. You're quite willing to stick around for relatively lengthy periods. Have you been surprised by how successful this strategy has been? You've been a director since 2008, and it's been a remarkable period for Scottish Mortgage and indeed for many of the other Bailey Gifford portfolios that invest in global growth. I have been, to, to be quite honest. When I went on the board, when I was first approached about the board, I thought um, investment trusts are a bit boring, been there, done that. And then I started looking at the portfolio and thought this is actually potentially rather interesting. That Even the top 10 holdings included some companies that I hadn't heard of. And it certainly proved to be interesting. And that philosophy, as you've described, has proved to be extremely profitable. I wish I'd invested even more than I did when I joined the board. <laughs> How far do you think that the performance of the investment trust, Scottish Mortgage, is down to the fact that we're living through a rather unprecedented period since the financial crisis, when interest rates have been remarkably, indeed unprecedentedly low and sustainably so? That has the effect of meaning that future cash flows are, are valued more highly by investors. How significant has that been in the success that Scottish Mortgage and others like it have had? I'm not sure that's been a significant factor over the last 10 years. What's well, certainly been true over the last one, and one can't claim any great prescience in this, is that the kind of stock Scottish Mortgage owns have proved to be the winners from the COVID crisis, including, of course, Zoom, the facility we're using right now. And, of course, that could have gone a completely different way. It could have been that the global crisis was a, a cyber crisis of some kind, which would have been had quite an opposite impact on the portfolio. And one can't claim prescience. Well, one, perhaps one can. I'm very impressed that, to go back to the book Mervyn and I wrote on radical uncertainty, at page 40, we said we must expect to be victims of a pandemic caused by some virus that does not yet exist. We certainly didn't know that three months later it did exist. You also mentioned something called a Carrington event. What was that and why is that relevant to uh, this discussion? It's an extreme electrical storm created by solar activity. And interestingly, the, the last one was in 1858, just too early, actually, to do what it would do if it did today, which was to knock out the electricity grid <laughs> of a large part of the world. And I think we just have to think about our lives for a moment to see that that kind of event could be a lot more devastating than this pandemic has been. And people talk about existential risks. And uh, I think without very much discrimination as to what they are, there's endless talk about climate change, whereas the Carrington event is one possibility. 
the pandemic is another. If one's frank about it, the truth is this pandemic could have been an awful lot worse. It could have been Ebola rather than um, a kind of mostly non-fatal illness it has proved to be. And, of course, there are always um, existential threats that come from geopolitical developments of various kinds. There are many things that can go badly wrong with the world. And the one that has upset the world so much in the last year is by no means the worst of the things that can happen in that sort of way. Indeed. I mean, they could be meteorites or wars that break out. You always emphasize the importance of risk management through diversification in everything you've written as a defense against some of these uh, things that we don't know might be about to happen. So how do you think that, say, a Scottish mortgage investment trust, which is pursuing a distinctive strategy of the kind you think is what investment trusts should be doing, what part would that play in a bigger, more diversified portfolio? Yeah, um, I remember we had a discussion as to how the investment strategy for an institution like St. John's College, which as you may know I've been in charge of for some years, uh, differs from the investment strategy you adopt in an an investment trust. And of course, there is a big difference because uh, for someone like St. John's, it is the whole of a portfolio and the academic activities of the college depend on uh, being able to um, rely on a transfer from the endowment. That takes one into a total return strategy, obviously, but it also takes one into a very wide-ranging diversification with a long time horizon. And one thing I realized in that context was the range of diversification which real estate provides for you. Uh, that people tend to talk about asset allocation with single categories that actually disguise the amount of diversification of often rather than increase it. Or rather, it's misleading to look at diversification in terms of conventional asset allocation stories. I mean, US and UK equities, for example, are rather similar in the sense that most of the companies which are at the top of the listings of either US or UK companies are companies which sell basically on a global scale to consumers in the rich West. So they're not that. You're not getting that much diversification by holding an S&P tracker as well as a as well as a FTSE tracker. On the other hand, in the I think in the St John's context, we hold an office block in San Francisco, some development land outside London, apartment block in Berlin, and if I think on a twenty-year horizon, the likely correlation between what happens to these is actually very low. That's rather different from what you see in a shorter time horizon because um, typically all real estate is interest rate sensitive in the short run. Uh, But I think in the long run, you're getting rather more diversification than real estate as a category would imply. In the case of St. John's, I imagine that uh, most of the property that it owns, it owns directly. In other words, it's invested directly in property rather than through uh, an investment trust or some other kind of fund. I don't imagine that uh, St. John's College does invest significantly in investment trusts, but is that the case or not? Um, Yes, that is the case. 
You and I can't own an office block in San Francisco. <laughs> yes, that's perfectly logical. Are there any exceptions at the margin where St John's College does invest in investment trusts? We do a little bit, mainly for Far East diversification. Why would you choose an investment trust with that rather than some other vehicle? If you can buy these things on a 15% discount, which from time to time you can, (laughs) that seems cheaper than buying rather similar portfolios direct. One of the most uh, striking features of the investment trust sector has been, in recent years, the emergence of what are loosely called alternative asset classes, trusts that invest in such things as renewable energy and infrastructure which are not dissimilar to property in a number of respects. Do you think that's a healthy development as far as individual investors are concerned? Yeah, and it's you know it's actually the other side of what we were talking earlier about um, Amazon, Apple and the like no longer being businesses that hold assets on their balance sheet. In a sense, the specialisation we now have is that the provision of capital to businesses is itself an outsourced function. So that um, when you buy Amazon, you're not buying warehouses. When you buy supermarkets, you're not buying shops, because all these are, as it were, outsourced services. It's a very different world. Going back to the comparison with the, the manufacturing businesses of the 20th century, that still there still is somewhere in in Brazil an area called Fordlandia where Henry Ford insisted on growing the rubber to put in the tyres on Ford cars himself. Apple, by contrast, in this sense, makes nothing. It's all essentially bought-in capabilities of various kinds. And it's this design capability that is the essence of what that company is. In a way, the smartphone, which is a a compilation of capabilities, you know, a phone, a messaging device, a sat-nav, uh, etc. It's a metaphor for Apple itself, that it's a business that collects capabilities rather than the integrated producer that these 20th century businesses were. Yes, everything, indeed. As I live in Oxford, and you obviously know Oxford very well, having been a, a graduate here and also your continuing connection with St. John's in Oxford. We have a good example here in uh, William Morris and the car business that he built, which was pretty much involved in making almost everything that went into the cars he produced. Absolutely. And in fact, I once uh, said in a talk, I think, that more or less the only thing Morris didn't do was uh, make his own stationery. And at the end of it, a historian friend came up to me and said, I should check on that if I were you. And it turned out there was the Nuffield Press. (laughs) uh, Morris insisted on that being produced to his requirements for him. Yes, it's a perfect example of yesterday's type of business. Let's talk a little bit about corporate governance. You've been a director of investment trusts. And one of the things that's said about investment trusts is that you at least, as a shareholder, do have the benefit of a board of directors there, which are managing the trust in your interest, or so at least you believe. Of course, it's only 20 years since we had the split-level capital trust scandal, which did not reflect well on the corporate governance standards of some parts of the investment trust business. As an investment trust director yourself, what has been your experience of how corporate governance works in reality in the investment trust sector? 
uh, is it not a lot to do today with pure process of managing all the obligations that uh, listed companies have? What distinguishes a good board of directors from an indifferent one? It's very interesting that you've just reminded me of being approached to be a director of one of these split-level investment trusts and being given various illustrations of the structure. And I asked some questions of the kind, <laughs> you know, what happens if the market goes down? <laughs> and eventually I decided I, I didn't want to be associated with this. And I, I remember as I walked away, so one of the proponents saying to me, um, these things are very hard to understand, aren't they? And I said to myself, yes, and I think I understand them rather better than you do. A different question might be, a lot of people wonder, what exactly do directors of investment trusts do? I mean, I'm one myself, so I have a pretty good idea. But a lot of the time, you're simply going through various processes, are you not? Where, what do you actually do that actually helps to add the value as a director of an investment trust? Um, and of course, you're right. And um, modern regulation has made a lot of the activity of being a director of uh, any company really rather boring or certainly really, really rather boring for people like us who are mainly interested in the ideas. But I think, I mean, the value of this kind of governance structure, and it may or may not actually have this function, is, as it were, forcing the manager to explain what his thinking and strategy is and challenging that and encouraging him in effect to have doubts. I think there are also a lot of investment trusts where people are going along for the nice lunches. But I found, particularly in Scottish mortgages, the discussion's quite intellectually stimulating and fun. Because of your own long experience as both a businessman and as an economist and an advisor to uh, listed companies, have you been tempted at points to say to the rest of the board and to the managers, well, we really should be doing this, or is it more a question of you saying to the managers of the trust, why are you doing this? In other words, challenging rather than actually formulating uh, the investment policy yourself, particularly where you may have strong convictions yourself about places to go looking for investment value. I mean, why are you doing this sounds very negative. I think, for example, a regular discussion in a Scottish mortgage context was the extent to which companies that achieve dominant positions quite quickly in particular areas, when these dominant positions are going to be lost and how quickly that happens. And people have wildly exaggerated ideas, I think, about how permanent the current dominance of companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook actually is. I remember a journalist ringing up and asking me, are there any examples in history of companies like that which have failed? And I thought, well, actually, you should frame that question the other way around. <laughs> uh, are there any which haven't? Yes. You would have made a mistake in the 20th century if you hadn't been a holder of General Motors shares. You would have missed out on a great deal. But you would also have done rather badly if you'd held on to General Motors shares through to 2009. And knowing when the dominance was over is a critical issue. And that's the sort of thing that you can have a discussion of without saying, why do we have such a large position in X stock? Although you can ask that kind of question as well. 
Well, looking at the markets today, how worried do you think investors should be about the fact that, as we all know, five companies now account for 25% of the value of the US stock market, for example, and those five obviously include a number that Scottish Mortgage owns, for example. Uh, does that the scale of that figure, the fact that a quarter of the market value is concentrated in such a few number of companies, is that something that you should be worried about? Does it tell us anything about uh, the maturity of the companies and how they might develop from here? It, 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 it doesn't in itself. And uh, you can ask these questions in different ways. But uh, Tesla and Amazon, for example, have a long way to go before they do, in fact, dominate either the automobile industry or, or retailing. Google, it's another matter on Facebook. You know, their, their long-term prospects depend really on the ability to diversify. I've sometimes thought of Google as a, a kind of cross between a high-tech business and Berkshire Hathaway, you know, with a whole variety of plays in different loosely associated businesses. Yes, it strikes me that Google is a different model to some of the others. They seem quite happy to try uh, all sorts of things, uh, almost for the fun of it in some cases, and try to find out what works and what does not work. Of course, as you're an economist who studied uh, regulation quite closely, uh, do you think that regulation of some of these social media companies, for example, will happen? And secondly, will it be effective? I mean, the studies I've seen show that there are often perverse outcomes of regulation. How would you see that at the moment? I think the general lesson is regulation will happen and it won't have very much effect. And one of the depressing, in a sense, not necessarily for the investor aspects of that, is the extent to which regulation tends, in the end, to support incumbents rather than the opposite. And, of course, financial services, which is... Well, financial services and pharmaceuticals, which are among the most heavily regulated of all industries, exemplify that pretty well. Indeed, some would also give tobacco stocks uh, as another example. I mean, nobody's going to start a new tobacco company today and would be hard-pressed to challenge any of the incumbents either, given the amount of regulatory hurdles that they have to go through. I mean, it's less that um, demand for tobacco is declining. The reason is more that managing the regulations and legal threats round about tobacco is an activity in which there are very large economies of scale. And that's strikingly true in financial services. In fact, it's so true in financial services that we've now recognised it with trying to create sand pits and the like. But it's hugely easier to deal with extensive regulation if you're an established uh, big business. Yes, it takes up a huge amount of time and resources that other participants uh, can't do or don't have the appetite or, or indeed the resources to carry out. Another question which we've touched on briefly is so-called de-equitization. In other words, the idea that the number of companies that are listed on the stock market has been falling steadily uh, over the last uh, 20 years, uh, greatly assisted in part by companies buying back their shares in large volumes. Do you think that trend is going to continue or is there some limit to that and we will actually see it reverse at some point? No, I think that will continue for the reasons we discussed earlier. That The traditional model of public equity markets was appropriate first for the 19th century railways with which it began, but then for large 
capital-intensive manufacturing businesses of the 20th century. And modern business really isn't like that anymore. It doesn't require that much capital on an ongoing basis, as we were describing the provision of such capital as it does need is largely outsourced. That's the phenomenon of um, buying in the warehouse, in effect, rather than owning it yourself. So that kind of vertical disintegration um, is absolutely characteristic of the 21st century business. And of course, we have extreme examples of that with companies like Airbnb or Facebook, where really the product is entirely provided by the, the consumers provides nothing but intermediary services. Uh, One of the other themes that comes out of all your writing about investment is that there are too many funds in existence. And that, I assume, really extends to investment trusts as well. There are 400 investment trusts and 3,000 open-ended funds or so open to UK investors. Uh, In other words, a lot you can choose from. But do you think that's a a fair summary? I, I think fund management is, in a sense, in a group I've sometimes said it's like estate agency and brain surgery. And in both these things, it's actually worth paying quite a lot more for someone who is slightly better. Uh, But you don't know who is, in fact, slightly better. And in these markets, price competition is pretty ineffective. You don't go to the brain surgeon who says, I may not be the best, but I'm cheap. And uh, being cheap is actually, if anything, a signal of inferior quality. Uh, So that price is a very weak competitive weapon in these markets. And the result of that, uh, brain surgery, right, we have quite heavy restrictions on entry into it. But estate agents and fund management, there are very few. So the result of that is it's a market in which prices are too high and there are far too many players in the market. Perhaps you could just explain why you think there are too many and why, if you like, the normal market forces or creative destruction or corporate Darwinism, if you like, doesn't seem to apply very effectively in this area. A lot of funds stagger on, even though they're not necessarily delivering the results the shareholders would want or indeed could benefit from. I think it should be shrinking and should become even more specialised. And it's very hard to see a justification for the very large number of rather general investment trusts with um, portfolios heavily concentrated on uh, familiar large companies. Can I also ask you about uh, venture capital trusts? Have you invested in one of those and what do you uh, feel about them? I have done in the past and I wouldn't now and I, I have a strong sense that venture capital trusts have mainly been run for the benefit of the people who run the venture capital trusts rather than investors and that the taxpayer contribution is mainly going to pay the fees of the trust managers. I would much rather go for either we talked about the Scottish mortgage uh, approach of intermediate stage companies or frankly I think my and the only venture capital successes I've had have really been where I actually knew the people involved myself. And therefore invested directly in the companies yeah. rather than in... You know, in uh, rather than through managers and layers of fees. And finally, looking back over your long career as an investor, can you think of mistakes you've made that you remember being particularly important in teaching you lessons? 
And how far do you think you've been successful as an investor over the years? I mean, it rather takes me aback to think that uh, the bulk of my wealth has actually come over my career from investment in the end, rather than from actual hard work. But uh, I guess with the power of compound interest, that is how it has been. What have been the, the biggest mistakes from which I've learned? I, I think the biggest lesson for all investors really is that because something is half the price it was six months ago, it doesn't mean it's cheap. And most of the serious mistakes I've made have been from that misconception. Yes, lessons of that kind are very helpful. And now moving on to your book about radical uncertainty, what is the central theme of that? Why should people read it? And and what is the central message uh, coming out of it? The central message coming out of that is that people have greatly exaggerated the scope for probabilistic type reasoning. And that actually alternative ways of thinking about uncertainty in terms of narratives, robustness and resilience are much more powerful for dealing with what is a radically uncertain world. We need to restore the distinction between risk and uncertainty that people made a century ago. And that has actually been essentially eliminated in modern financial economics in which risk, uncertainty and volatility are treated as if they're all the same thing and they are not. Well, thank you, John. I'd like to thank you for your time and very much look forward to uh, reading uh, your next book. Can I ask you what that's about? Well, at the moment, it's a kind of download of everything I've ever thought or know about business. And I'm downloading that and will condense it into what will be... The file is called Business in Society. And that that's the provisional title of my next book. Thank you, John, for your time and your wise words. That brings us to the end of our 2020 Investment Trust weekly podcasts. Thank you all for listening and staying with us throughout this difficult year. I very much look forward to talking to you again in the new year when we will be resuming our regular free weekly podcasts. And can I finish by wishing you all a very happy new year and hopefully a better one than the one we've just experienced. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.